right. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning to gather together with your saints. It's such a blessing. It's a little slice of heaven on earth, Lord. And so we're grateful to be together at this time to praise you and glorify you. We have every, everything to be thankful for, Lord, for you are good and your mercy endures forever. And so this morning as we continue to worship you, Lord, I pray the Holy Spirit would just fill us afresh, that you would restore our souls that you would revive us according to your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, before you sit down, can you say hello to someone, please? Okay, so got a few announcements before we get into the word, but we're going to be in uh, Luke chapter 8 if you want to get there before we start diving in. Uh, The first announcement is... uh, We've been announcing October 7th, uh, really uh, encouraging you, I would say begging you, I'll beg you, to come to our event that we're working with the Flower Mound Police Department. It's called Faith and the Blue, and they've selected our church out of all the churches in Flower Mound to host uh, this particular event, and um, part of that is because... The event is going to be Chaplains and Chili. And uh, I'm a chaplain. That's one of the reasons we got selected to do this. But uh, the the whole town is invited. And um, it's going to be something where you and I can uh, reach out to the community. And that's something that is uh, obviously important to us. All you have to do is show up and eat chili. That's all you have to do. So... It's from 11 to 1, and uh, that's a good uh, opportunity for us to put our best foot forward um, with the police department and with the community. And just uh, the way it's structured, it's um, the chaplains are going to um, host a table to where they're going to have chili, and it's going to be a contest. So there'll be voting involved from the people that come. And so that's another reason it's important to come. So uh, it's a Saturday. It's, it's a couple hours. You don't have to, obviously don't have to be here the whole time, but um, just going to be a time to meet the police department. That's really what it's about and fellowship with them and then fellowship with other congregations that uh, will come as well. So, yeah, so that's that. Keep that in prayer. This Wednesday night, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and 11, if you want to pray and read that before... We get into that, and then this Monday night is the beginning of the women's ministry, and it's at 7 o'clock here at the church. They'll meet on Monday nights um, up until probably like um, November, something like that. Yeah, so this they'll be going through this particular session, and uh, I thought uh, a good way to sort of introduce that would be to show the video from their retreat they had last week. So just a little snippets of some of the stuff that went on last week in Broken Bow. So it's a little different. Everything that happens in Broken Bow gets to go out of Broken Bow. (laughs) Doesn't stay there. Should go out. So let's 
Take a look at that. All right. Amen. Well, praise the Lord for the women in our church. And we're so grateful for the Lord working in and through all of you ladies. So praise the Lord for that. Luke chapter 8, chapter 8, verse 40 through verses 56. As we get into this section of Scripture, we're really jumping into where there's a lot of action. Jesus is on the move. Jesus is working a lot of miracles. Jesus is touching and affecting a lot, a lot of people as he's going through. And, and what Jesus is doing as, he, as he's doing that is, one, he's trying to, in a, a very solid, tangible way, trying to uh, manifest or express, I should say, who he is, trying to demonstrate and prove that he is truly the Messiah. And in order to do that, he has to show that he's omnipotent. What does that mean? That means that he's all-powerful. So he goes and, and he does these miracles showing that his power is greater than any other power that there is. He's showing that he is overall and in all, that he is the creator of all. And as we start to really dive in and understand more uh, about the omnipotence of God, the all-powerful nature of God. That's just simply one of his attributes. That's his character. Uh, the word omnipotent means the quality of having unlimited or very great power. When it comes to theological understanding, when it comes to referring to God, it's God's all-powerful character. And so it's to recognize that there's nothing outside of his ability to accomplish and no one who can exercise power over him. So what does that do to someone that just knows that? To understand that God is all-powerful, that his power is, is really beyond our, our comprehension. There's ways that we understand power and we ascribe power the universe, as we see it, has different ways and different um, expressions of, of power uh, in Texas. With a lot of the storms that we have, I don't know about you, but it just kind of makes me feel small when you see one of these incredible storms that we have. It makes me realize that, man, if nature wanted to do something my house, it could do whatever it wanted to, and I couldn't do anything about it except for hide from it. And that's just a very, very small thing compared to God's power. In fact, he is, he is over the power of nature. He's over the power of darkness and demons. He's over the power, any power that we can think of, he is over that. And so it's important first that we take a a look at understanding God's power, what it is, and just have a fresh view of what God can do. So power relates to ability. Uh, a lot of us are constantly aware of our ability or inability. We are always measuring things about what we can do and what we can't do. And, and God, His power, He doesn't have any limitations to His power. He can do and does do whatever he wants to do. And nobody can stop him from doing those things. 
And so as we're sort of traveling with Jesus and his ministry and going around with them, it kind of feels like we're just kind of tagging along like, like flies on the wall. And we start to, to realize, wow, this is what he's doing. He's, he's showing, he's demonstrating that he is more powerful than all these things that we might consider powerful. In chapter 7, you may remember, he healed a Roman soldier, a centurion's servant. And what was interesting about healing that servant, that the servant was dying. And he said, Jesus, I know that you don't need to be there to heal him. You can say the word wherever you are, demonstrating that God's power is outside of geographical location. In other words, and that was, that was something important because he, he said to the centurion that your faith is something I marvel at, Jesus said. I'm really blown away by the faith that you have because you're, you're getting closer to understanding who I am. You're, you're getting a, a close to understand that when I, my, in my word, when I say something, it's created or it's done. We saw how Jesus not only did that, but he raised this widow's only son who lived in a town called Nain. They're carrying this widow's son out in a coffin, and they're having a funeral. And Jesus comes by, and he touches the coffin, and he says the word, and this person was raised to life. So what does that mean? He has power over death. Is it important to know that? Is it important? Does it give us confidence to know that he has power over death, that that death is not something that's stronger than him. And so he's, he, you see these things, and he's trying to get, especially his disciples, to understand his power. Because they're going to be the ones that need to go out and after he dies and raises again and, and needs to tell people about who Jesus was and his power. And then we see him with his disciples going across the Sea of Galilee, and the storms came in, and the boat's sinking, and the Disciples panic, and they, Jesus is asleep, and they yell out to Jesus, and Jesus just tells the storm. He tells the storm to stop. He rebuked the storm, and the wind and the waves just stopped immediately. There's instant calm. So he's doing all this to show who he is and to give the disciples and hopefully us today the confidence that we know who he, who he is. And so he goes to the other side of the sea, and what does he encounter? A demon possessed man. And what does he do? The demons bow down to him. The demons are cast out at his presence. They can't handle being around Jesus. So what does that tell us? That his power is greater than the demons. But the people there in the town, they they wanted Jesus to get out of there. Why? Because of his power. See, some are afraid of his power to the extent where they just want to get away from God. And others fall down and surrender to his power, realizing one's proper place before an all-powerful God, as we start to understand these things, then we have to ask this. This is a question I always ask. If we understand that God is all-powerful, so he can do whatever he wants and does do whatever he wants, then what is God's willingness? So like in whatever you may be going through now, and you pray, and you, you know God, you have the power to do something here, to change something here. 
But then the thing is, well, how come you're not doing it? If, if you feel like, well, nothing's happening, how come you're not doing it? I see these things in the Bible. I, I see what you're saying, but it doesn't seem like you're doing anything. So how willing is God? So God's all-powerful, but how willing is He? Well, He is, and this is another thing that we're seeing in, in these scriptures, is that He is willing. He does desire to help. He is there as an ever-present help in our time of need. We see that He is a compassionate God, that He's actually moved in His heart through our difficulty, our trial, our suffering. And so then something often doesn't kind of square up to where we say, well, Lord, look, look, at, look at how hard this is. Look at what I'm going through. Look at this difficulty. Look at what, what I'm dealing with. How come you're not doing anything? Well, there's an answer for that too. So how willing is God? So a couple of things. In uh, Psalm 84.11, it says that God withholds no good thing from those who walk uprightly. In other words, this is really helpful. So that scripture tells us that on behalf of the believer, on behalf of the Christian, God's working in that Christian's life is only to further the good in their life. And so you may say, wow, this doesn't seem good at all. How is this good? When we start to think like that, we're expressing our limitations and the limitations of our finite minds. We all do it. We all scratch our head. Knowing the goodness of God, knowing His desire to bestow goodness, that He won't withhold any goodness, and yet experiencing things that don't seem good and don't seem right. And that's where we begin to understand the difference between God's infinite understanding and our finite understanding. What does that mean? It's impossible for us to fully comprehend the fullness of the things that God is doing. We have the benefit of looking in the Bible and seeing very difficult situations. For example, the cross. Who thought that was good at the time? Who thought that was good? The disciples didn't think that was good. The disciples saw their life just falling apart. They saw the end of everything. But that's not what God saw, did he? What did God see on the cross? He saw the most amazing thing that would ever happen to mankind. That God would die on that cross to pay the penalty for man's sins. So we can't always comprehend the goodness of God because of the limitations of our minds and the limitations of our thinking. That's why when you have an omnipotent, all-powerful God who is also a good God, then we have to know by faith that God is, in Romans 8, 28, that He is working 
all things together for good. We have to surrender our understanding that we may not understand what's happening. We may not understand why we are going through something that we're going through, but we understand that God is working something towards an end, and the end is always good. There are things, the Bible helps us so much in this understanding, there are things that happen that are necessary to happen for our deeper good, our higher good, our spiritual good, and may I say our eternal good. Another scripture that comes to mind is Romans 8.32 where it says, How shall he, God the Father, not with him, Jesus, also freely give us all things? So, the, the question is, how do we square God's ability to anything and everything with his willingness to help us in our situation now? And that's what we're going to look at this morning. We're going to look at it in, in three ways. If you're taking notes, we're going to look at a despairing dad, a desperate lady, and a dead daughter. So notice with me, chapter 8, verse 40. Look at the despairing father. It says, So it was when Jesus returned that the multitude welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. Now Jesus is coming back from the Gadarenes where he just got kicked out for casting demons out of a demon-possessed man into a swine, a herd swine or a pig herd. And they ran down a cliff when they got demon-possessed in, into the ocean. All these pigs were destroyed. The people there, because of the understanding of the power of God, they didn't want him there. He was, the power scared them. They saw the power as that which would destroy their interests in the world. His power would destroy their sin and their uh, desire to live in sin. And so they just wanted him to get out of there. And so he obliged. So he leaves and he comes back to where he was staying during his ministry around the Sea of Galilee, and that was Capernaum. As he comes back, it's interesting that there are a bunch of people waiting for him. And they had a different response to him than the people in the gatherings. They welcomed him, and they were waiting for him. They, they had seen him do miracles and amazing mighty works already in this, in this village, in this town. So they, they couldn't wait. It's almost as if they were standing there just waiting. They could see him from afar off coming, and there's he's coming, he's coming. And when he arrives there, it says... There came a man named Jairus, and he was a ruler of the synagogue. So there would be these synagogues in these towns. That's where the Jewish people would meet to worship God. A ruler of the synagogue would mean that they were basically in charge of just setting up the services. They would be in charge of getting the speakers, making sure the scriptures were there, making sure that um, everything was operating in a specific order. 
And that was his job. So to, to understand the background of Jairus is to, to understand that he was deeply entrenched in religious system. He had been through, uh, we don't know how many services, how many talks, how many reading of the scrolls, how many of these things that he's, he's witnessed, but there was something missing. And I think for our church, this is so important. Because he realized in his particular desperate situation that it is possible to go through the routine, routine of church, the mechanism of church, the organization of church, and there's no power there. And that means that the people that are the church, because the church is people, so that's all of us. It's very dependent on us and our relationship with God. That we don't allow our relationship with God to deteriorate to going through the motions, the mechanisms, the routine. But instead, it's the power of God that we're experiencing as we worship God, as we praise God, as we give Him the fullness of what we are. And it's, it's just amazing that it, it, anybody who is really serious about something, it's amazing to see how they approach it or see how they, they go for it. Kid talk about football, football seasons here, and you think about the concentration, you think about the focus, think about our pilot friends here. We have some pilots here. You think about... When a pilot gets to a certain altitude, they can put it on what? Cruise control, right? But when they're about to land and the weather's not good, do you think they're relaxed like they are when they're in cruise control? No. Thank you. Where's George? When you're going through weather and your plane is starting to move around and you're about to land, every faculty of your being is probably focused on this one task because it's so important. You would not take a, a situation like that lightly, but there would just be a, a certain mentality. There would be a certain awareness, a consciousness of What's going on? And, and you had used every bit of your knowledge, every bit of your training. All of that would come into play and be working to get that plane down safely. And, and this is uh, what is so important about the church, that we understand how important a walk with Jesus is. Or say, for example, just meeting together like this. This is not a, a, a passive thing of just watching but this is an engagement because the spiritual warfare is so intense because there there are things going on that we don't see behind the scenes and it it takes engagement it's not a, it's not a, a casual 
put your feet up on a recliner type of thing. It's engagement. And that's why the Bible tells us that we are to love God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength because we're to put our, our whole being into that. And as we, we look at this Jairus, it was actually something that hap- happened that made him be in that position. In other words, life would have continually probably gone on the way it always has had it not been for this situation that we're going to see in a second. Sometimes it takes something to rock us, to shake us up in order for us to get on our knees. And so when we think about the engagement, the Bible is really clear about, for example, the uh, effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. So why does the Bible say that? It's because when we pray, there should be an engagement. There should be a passion. There should be a devotion, a sacrifice, a commitment. Not, this is something, I'm going to say a few things out of my mouth while I'm also scrolling through my phone or watching something. So there's an engagement here. There's an intentionality. There's a focus. There's a purpose. And for Jairus, you think about his life and just sermon after sermon, message after message, setting up the synagogue over and over again and going through the routine and how easy that would have been until it says he fell down at Jesus' feet. In other words, there is something that brought him to his knees, something that floored him, something that brought him to the awareness of his own helplessness to help his own daughter. He'd come to the end. And this typically is where we discover the power of God. Why is that? Because especially in our society, we have so many things we could substitute for God. Substitute for depending on Him, substitute for His power. In many cases, it's just God's there, but we can figure everything out. We got everything else handled. And we have resources to take care of things and all these things. But what we're finding and what we all will find is that at the end of the day, end of the day we are very limited and helpless when it comes to the power that we need the most. And this was Jairus. He, he was in such a position where you think about uh, one who has looked upon so well and probably as a religious figure, but there's one thing that happened that actually caused him in a way to denounce all of his religion because his, his religion couldn't help him. It didn't have the power to help him. And so all he knew he, he knew he could do is get on his knees before Jesus. Now that's a radical thing for him to do. Because Jesus was already having a hard time with the Pharisees who were the religious people. And yet this man who is basically representing the synagogue, he didn't care about anything else because he knew Jesus could help him. He knew Jesus 
have the power, and he was in a position where all of those religious rituals weren't going to do anything. And so there are times in life that 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 happens. All we can do is get on our knees. But may I suggest that we don't wait for something catastrophic to happen, that we're always on our knees before God. That we're always understanding His omnipotence in our helplessness. He fell down at the feet of Jesus. And then He begged Him to come to His house. Now, this is interesting because you you see his faith. He has faith to know that Jesus can help him. But his faith wasn't developed enough to know that Jesus didn't have to be there at that location. The centurion, the Roman soldier, he realized, Jesus, you can just say anything. It'll happen anywhere, anytime, anyplace. Not so for this synagogue ruler. So his thought is, Jesus can help in my situation if I could just get him there. It's almost that, that, that idea of like, if I can just get it like a, a piece of uh, anointing oil and, and just put that on somebody, that, that that would take care of them or some object or some thing that we may ascribe power to. So that's what he's thinking. If I could just get Jesus there, but to have a faith like that, you can see how limited that is. Because it's, it's limiting God's omnipresence, His all-powerful nature. Now, now His hope, yes, it's in Jesus, but it's in Jesus getting to the right place at the right time. Jesus wants to teach him that his, that faith is limited. That His power is not limited. That's what Jesus is teaching him. So, He says in verse 42, he tells Jesus what his problem is. He says, or it says that he had an only daughter. So that that brings about the urgency and the heart and the connection that he would have had with his daughter, his only daughter. He had this daughter for 12 years. He watched her grow up. He watched her first words, her first meal, her first laugh, her first cry. He would have all of these feelings and emotions all put in this daughter, and it was all dead. It was all gone. It says she was 12 years of age, and she was dying. But as he went, so, he, so he's agreeing, and he's on his way. And you can think for a moment, okay, Jesus is on his way, all good, all done, it's over, let's go. But as he's going, it says the multitudes thronged him. So what does that mean? So you can imagine Jairus saying, okay, we got it, let's go. And they're, they're going, and then there's so many people that Jesus is not able to go fast enough. Can you imagine the, the pressure that he would be feeling? The pressure because of his limited faith, thinking that if Jesus has to get there before she dies. And Jesus is going, but he can't go fast enough. You ever think Jesus is not going fast enough? You ever think, Jesus, if you don't intervene now, 
then it's going to be too late. Jesus, you need to act now. You need to work now. And so this, this pressure would have been, been building up with Jairus. And you can sense that he would want to say, come on, Jesus, let's go and want to pull him or get the people away from him. But think about this. All the people that were thronging him, they had needs too. So whose needs are more important? So you can see there could be a, a battle of needs. But Jesus here is demonstrating his power again in a, another way in that all needs are important to him, not just Jairus's need. And so we start off looking at this desperate father and how Jesus is handling his power with this desperate father. The desperate father has no ability to change the situation, so he's completely helpless. His power is over. His power is no good. His power cannot help or do anything for his daughter. So he's done. No power. But then he recognizes Jesus' power. But in his mind, that's still limited. And Jesus wants to develop his faith. So we see one reason that Jesus doesn't always rush in right, right the moment we pray that he brings down the thing that we're praying for. There's a lot that's going to happen in the middle of Jesus getting to Jairus' daughter. And that's what God is doing in our life. We may be praying and praying and praying, but there's a lot happening in between our praying and God fulfilling. Watch this. So as he's going, the crowds are surrounding him. He can't get there as fast as Jairus would like. So then comes a woman. It says she had a flow of blood for 12 years. Well, what does that mean? There was a, a lady that was absolutely desperate. She was having a 12-year-long menstrual cycle. You talk about someone who's desperate. This woman, not only because of the, the obvious of how difficult this would be, but this, this would, have had effect, would have affected her religiously. Why? She would be considered unclean. So she couldn't go worship in the synagogue. She couldn't be around her family. They would be considered unclean. This would have affected her psychologically. She would have felt terrible about herself. She would have felt ostracized and as an outcast. So the ramifications of what is going on is immense. Imagine how terrible she would have felt, how sickly she would have been, how her strength would have been zapped. How difficult it would be for her to have a smile on her face, to have a light countenance, to bless people. She was in survival mode. And, th and as she's in survival mode, she sees a potential of someone who has the power to help her. 
Now imagine her desperation because her desperation was fully in the presence of Jesus, physically. And this might have been, in her mind, her only shot. This would have been the answer that she has to actually get to. This is some, like some of the fake faith healers that you see on TV, and they'll have a, a conference in a certain location, and you have a sickness, and you say, if I don't get to that conference where that faith healer is, I won't get healed. And if I don't pay that money, and if I don't have their handkerchief uh, go on my forehead and them slay me in the spirit or whatever, then I'm not going to get healed. So you would be pretty desperate if you really thought that that particular person was going to cure you of whatever ailment you had. And that's why those people prey on people. They prey on people's desperation. But she was going through this and thought, oh, this is my one shot. And she wasn't allowed to be around anybody. But she took a risk. Why? Not only was she in this condition, but look, at she spent all of her livelihood on physicians and she couldn't be healed by any. So think about the disappointment that she would go over or go through over and over again. I got it. This guy has the magic formula and she pays money and she tries it and she's all hopeful and that doesn't work. Well, it, it seems like she had gone through this many times. Many healers, many potential people who knew the root and the cause of their problem and they had a potion and something that can help her and she would be willing to give her money out for all of it because health is so important. And she would exhaust all of her resources. She would get to the place where she would try this and try that and try that. She'd get her hopes up, disappointed, hope up, disappointed, hope up, disappointed. And that gets really tiresome. For 12 years she was doing this. And that would add on to her psychological uh, disappointment and struggles that she would be going through. So in verse 44 it says, she came from behind Jesus. So, mind you, there's a, she, he's in the middle of a whole bunch of people. And she got through the crowd, and she touched the border of his garment. That's all she did. And immediately, her flow of blood stopped. What is... Jesus doing. Jesus would have known that this was going to happen because he's omniscient, meaning all-knowing. Jesus knew this interaction would have occurred, occurred and you have Jairus on the sideline watching this and not wanting him to stop, but Jesus is teaching him something through this. But at the same time, Jesus was here for this woman. And it was, it was simply this, this uh, receiving of God's power that demonstrated he had power over her disease as well. Notice it wasn't a process of healing. It was instantaneous. 
This shows a true miracle that happened. And, and, and Jesus, when this happened, he said, who touched me? So nobody is aware of what happened except for Jesus and the woman. So as this, Jesus is going through this mob of people, nobody would have noticed except for Jesus would have yelled out, who touched me? Which would have caused people to say, what do you mean? Everybody's touching you. And that's what Peter pointed out. What do you, what do you mean? Peter says, and those who were with him, they say, Master, the multitudes throng. That means they're, they're brushing against or sort of rubbing against. And the, the, the mob, they're, they're touching you. They're rubbing against you and they're pressing you. And you say, who touched me? But Jesus said, somebody touched me. What was he saying there? Something different happened. There's a difference. There's a difference between rubbing shoulders with Jesus and touching Jesus. This demonstrates something from our part of how we approach Jesus. This demonstrates that just being around Jesus, just bumping into Him without having faith-grabbing intentions may not do much for us. What do you mean? Sitting here this morning without the desire to get a hold of Jesus by faith might not do anything for you. Rubbing around the edges of Christianity looking at him in a way where, yeah, he's that, but I'm not going to embrace that. May I go a step further and say, belief in Jesus is not enough. What do you mean? The demons believe. Just believing in him is not enough. Here's, here's maybe a good way to illustrate that. So like when we do communion, and we have the communion... Uh, cracker. So if I pass that around, or we pass that around, the ushers pass around, you say, you would believe that's a cracker. I don't think anybody would argue that. But then it's another thing to eat it. And that's sort of what faith is. Faith is like, I believe that's Jesus, but I'm taking it in. I'm receiving it for myself. I'm taking it upon myself as something that I am going to rest and surrender my life to. You see the difference? So just believing in, in something intellectually, it's really intellectual suicide, in my opinion, not to believe in Jesus. But that doesn't save us. We have to apprehend Jesus by faith. We have to take in who he is by faith, and when that happens, we're transformed. So when Jesus says, somebody touched me, he's saying there's something different. There's something different than all the multitudes that were physically touching him. There is one out of the crowd 
that touched him by faith to the effect that they were healed, yes, physically, but we're going to see they were healed spiritually. They became a born-again Christian. And it says, he says, I felt, this is what happened, I felt, I perceived power going out of me. So that's what happened. That's what faith does, is it, it moves just an intellectual, mental understanding of God. It moves that to the heart, to where we believe in God in our heart by faith. So this woman in verse 47, it says, the woman, she saw that she wasn't hidden, meaning she wanted to just get in and get out, a drive-by healing. Nobody would notice. Nobody talked to me. I'm just in and I'm out. Why did she, why did she want to do that? Well, part of it is because she, she wasn't allowed to touch people. So maybe she thought she'd get Jesus in trouble. Maybe she thought she would get in trouble. But Jesus wasn't going to allow her to subtly go away like that. He was bringing her out to bless her and to let her know that she is accepted by him. So the woman, she's not hidden now. So she comes trembling because Jesus said, who touched me? And they're like, what do you mean who touched you? And she knew, she's healed. Jesus knew. So she comes, she's afraid of what Jesus might say or might do. She's afraid she's going to get in trouble or Jesus is going to be mad at her. And she falls down before him. See, she wouldn't have had this opportunity to worship Him, to proclaim her love for Him. And she declares to Him in the presence of all the people the reason that she had touched Him and how she was healed immediately in verse 48. And He said to her, daughter. That's Him accepting her into the family of God. That's a, a word of tenderness. And acceptance. See, if she would have just gone off, the people wouldn't have seen her accepted, see her being brought in. They would have known that she had been healed. She would have lived a, a quiet, sequestered life on her own and not able to express the fullness of her gratitude and love and joy in the community. So Jesus brought her out. And he says, your faith has made you well. That word well is a Greek word for saved. It's a different word we're going to see or we saw earlier, which means cured. So this is alluding to the fact that not only was she healed physically, but we can see that she was healed ultimately spiritually by having her sins be forgiven. And what does he tell her? What happens when someone receives the forgiveness of Jesus, they go in peace. That's one of the biggest things that happens. The burden is lifted. The animosity between man and God, the, the guilt, the shame, it's all lifted. And this woman, she would have probably been real light with the joy of the Lord and the forgiveness of of the Lord. So let's look at this last little part here. 
So then we finally get to the dead daughter where we first started. Now all this time, Jairus is there going, oh man, come on, come on. And it says, while he is still speaking. So you see the action there. There's all this stuff happening. Someone came from the ruler of the synagogue's house saying, your daughter is dead. Don't trouble the teacher. This person doesn't have the gift of mercy. <laughs> it doesn't sound like, your daughter's dead, don't bother him. In other words, think about Jairus now, it's too late. Jesus didn't make it. Maybe before he had a chance, but there's too many people and he stopped to heal somebody else. So it's too late. Don't bother with it. Don't mess with it. In verse 50, but when Jesus heard it, he answered and said, and this is maybe the key to the whole thing, don't be afraid, only believe. I believe that sums up this whole section of Scripture. Don't be afraid, only believe, and she will be made well. So when he came into the house... He permitted no one to go in except for Peter, James, John, and the father, Jarius, or Jarius the mother of the girl. And they, they all wept and mourned for her. That was a funeral. They're giving her a funeral. But he said, do not weep. She is not dead, but she is sleeping. That's a way Jesus is uh, referring to this young lady. as death is not final for those who are believers in Jesus Christ. This is also a way to say, just wait. That time for her to fully and completely depart from life is not this time. But they ridiculed him in verse 53, knowing that she was dead. So they're laughing at Jesus. The funeral party's laughing at Jesus. So what did he do? He put him outside. I, can't, I don't want people like you around. You're negative. You don't have faith. I don't want to cast my pearls to swine. Their laughing caused them to miss the miracle. Their skepticism. So he takes her by the hand and called saying, little girl, arise. But watch how this is described. It says, the spirit returned. So that's what death is, when our spirit leaves our body. But Jesus had the ability to call the spirit back and put the spirit back in the body. And then she arose immediately and he commanded that she be given something to eat. And her parents were astonished, but he charged them not to tell what had happened. So we start to put all of this together and we look at our lives and we should be able to say if, if Jesus can stop the woman from menstruating for 12 years immediately, if Jesus can put a spirit back in to a dead daughter. 
there's nothing he cannot do for you. And so as we begin to understand how helpless we are, and then look to our all-powerful God who can do anything, you and I now can rest in knowing that God is working all things together for good. And He's working on our behalf towards a good end. And it may not seem like it now. It may cause us to lose sleep and to be restless now. But He's telling us through these scriptures that I am faithful to complete what I started. Don't give up. Don't be afraid. Have faith. And let me work. And here's the promise. One day, we will be able to look back. It may be in this life or it may be the next. And we will see the things that we didn't understand and how God worked them to perfection. We may realize the things that he prevented, the evil that he took away, the detour that we thought was a train wreck, but it was really him leading us away from something harmful and destructive. The point is, we just don't know. Therefore, we believe. And we walk in the confidence of God's goodness and his plan. And that's the message of God's all-powerful nature. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning, and I thank you for the brothers and sisters who have gathered here today and all those listening online. I pray, Lord, that we would be able to see from what you've shown us today that you're not panicked, you're not alarmed, you're not worried, you're not fretting. You are fully and completely in control. And I pray, Lord, that we would just take a step of faith today and instead of being afraid that we would believe. I pray today that, especially if anybody is here and does not have a relationship with you, that today would be their day of salvation, that today would be the day that they would call themselves or be called by you a, a son or daughter of God. I pray, Lord, that today anybody who doesn't know you would grab a hold of you by faith and say, Lord, not only do I believe in my head, but I put my faith in you and I trust you. That's saving faith. I invite you today to just come to Jesus. And you can do that wherever you are, right in your seat, at home, wherever you are hearing this. And just cry out to Jesus and say, Jesus, forgive me, a sinner. I believe in you and I trust you. Forgive me, Lord. And make me new. And if you are a believer this morning, I pray that whatever you're going through, you would know and realize that Jesus is asleep in the boat because he's not panicked. And so we can be asleep or rest in our situation knowing that all things work together for good. So Lord, we thank you. We love you. We praise you. 
We trust, Lord, that you would take this word and write it on our hearts and minds. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, let's all stand. We're going to worship the Lord before we go. If anyone would like prayer about anything this morning, uh, we're going to have our prayer team up front. And I just encourage you as we sing this last song just to go ahead and make your way up front and we'll make sure that you get prayer.